Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors, a strategic communications company. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. My guest this week is Father Dale Hall. On the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, he is the chaplain of the streets. Dale is an Anglican priest whose mission is to serve the homeless every day and night here in Chattanooga. Father Dale, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we learn more about how you use social media to bring attention to the needs of the unhoused, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? Dark roast. Dark as midnight with a touch of cream. (laughs) Caffeinated in the morning? Caffeinated. Uh, Right now, I'm... uh, this is not an endorsement, but I'm drinking uh, Death Wish coffee. So, yeah. I've heard, I've heard of Death Wish. So you like it strong and get you going. That's right. Strong as midnight. Strong as midnight. I like that. Well, thank you so much for being here. I discovered you oh, probably a year, year and a half ago, because uh, I've always been a big Twitter fan. I've been on Twitter for years. We used it in uh, when I was in the television business. We used it in the newsroom and used it to promote the stations. But I discovered you and some of the things you're doing as the chaplain on the streets and some of the things you report. And I just found a lot of interest in it. So I, I wanted to talk to you about not just where you are today, but how you got here. So I understand you grew up in Rossville, Georgia. Tell us a little bit about growing up, high school, and, and where you eventually went to college. Oh, sure. Yeah, I grew up in Rossville, just across the state line, and uh, went to Rossville High School back when that was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, went to Shorter College in Rome, Georgia, which is a Baptist school. At that time, figured I would uh, be a youth minister or something. Grew up in the church, grew up in the Baptist church. And, um, yeah, started uh, my college career and started out as a theater major, but then quickly switched over to social work and sociology. When you were in high school, before you decided to go to Shorter, did you always wanted to get into the ministry or did you have dreams of something else like you were a theater major? Was that to prepare you for the ministry? Yeah. You know, I wasn't sure. So, yeah, I did a lot of theater in uh, high school, Uh chorus and stuff like that, and uh, middle school and high school. So, yeah, the performing arts definitely was a huge part of my life, you know, sang in the choir and in uh, church growing up and, and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, definitely felt um, some type of call to ministry, some type of uh, call to. And, and when you're 20, being a youth pastor is what makes the most makes sense, sense yeah. at that time. So there was a goal to go to Shorter and become a youth pastor? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So when you got out of Shorter, what did you do? Well, while I was at Shorter, you know, you have to log in volunteer hours and different things like that. And one of the things I did, I volunteered and spent a night at this shelter for the homeless that one of the local churches was sponsoring. That was in Rome? In Rome, Georgia. So, yeah, went in uh, and uh, made sure everybody had dinner and, and spent the night there as a volunteer. And that was really my first instance in uh, homeless ministry right there. Talk about the experience in terms of what it was like of going in as a young man and seeing all these people in need. 
and how that affected you going in. And you talked about spending the night. I assume is the same type of accommodations as everyone else had there. Right. Yeah. It was. Um, I don't know that it was a fellowship hall. I think it was a, a larger side room, but they had beds set up. It was something that they ran on a regular basis, and. I don't know. It was just really interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, One, that this church was doing something that the church should be doing, right? Everybody can tell you what the church is supposed to look like. Everybody can tell you. It it doesn't matter who they are. They, They could not be a believer at all. They, you know, it doesn't matter how they grew up. If you ask people, what should the church look like? Everybody can tell you. Well, they'll take care of the poor. They'll uh, teach the word. They won't charge you a lot of money. And everybody can tell you what it's supposed to look like. And uh, I looked around, and it was what the church was supposed to look like. That had to be heartening then. It was. And as you were growing up, did your parents instill this responsibility in you, or was it just growing up in the church? I think it was simply growing up in the church. You know, whether it was taught or whether it was caught, I can't tell you, but uh, probably a, a, a mix of, of everything. I like that term, taught or caught. Yeah. I just remember being a very small child. And my mother decided she better get me into church. Yeah. <laughs> so our grandfather lived with us at that time. And in good Appalachian fashion, we called him Paul. Mm-hmm. And so my mother's taking me to church and they're telling me stories about Jesus and Peter and Paul. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wow, this is really cool. These are my family. And so that was my understanding of uh, the Bible, the stories of the Bible, and uh, everything. That at, is great. At a very early age, it's like, this is my family book. Yeah. Yeah, this is my family. And so when you see Peter walking by people in the book of Acts and they're being healed, or when you see other good things going on, the deacons in the early church, or when you hear Jesus's words in Matthew 25, they said, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? And Jesus identifies himself with the poor and says, whenever you've done it for one of these, you've done it for me. He wasn't just writing poetry. He was telling you how he views the poor. And he says, I am the poor. Mm-hmm. And if you turn away from them, you've turned away from me. But if you give, if you clothe, if you feed, if you feed one of the least of these, you've done it for me. And man, that's just that's just strong medicine to help you reorientate your life, right? Yeah, that is. And I, I would imagine the effect of a young child and also confusing Paul and Paul it really brought it home for you to, to take those stories as family history, for lack of better description. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have any siblings? I've got a sister. Is she in ministry of any type? She was a school teacher for that's decades. A minist- that's a ministry. Yeah, my wife's a school teacher. My son's a school teacher. My daughter-in-law's a school teacher. The youngest son, he's up in D.C. working for the Department of Commerce. So, so you're in Shorter. 
you've done the homeless shelter, but then you also get involved when you get out working in a kid's shelter. And if you can, just kind of take us down that path. And Yeah, my first full-time job as a college graduate was uh, with um, a group home in Georgia. And, and you're not a minister at this time, is that right? No, no. Just just a fresh college graduate. Yeah. I had been licensed in ministry at that time, but I was uh, just a kid getting out, mm-hmm. getting his feet wet. And, um, yeah, the kids there had, uh, most of them had suffered a, a lot of abuse at a very young age and uh, just hard, hard situations, heartbreaking situations. And yet kids are kids. And, uh, you know, so I, I would just be kind of a, a big brother to them. Had to be somewhat authoritarian, but at the same time, just tried to be a big brother. Yeah, probably not a huge age difference at that point either. Maybe 10 years. Yeah, they were like 6 to 12, and I'm maybe 22 at the time. And so, yeah, not not that old. <laughs> not, <Yeah. laughs> not old enough to really be an adult, you know, yeah. but uh, keep and, the peace. And, and they could probably trust you, too, from the standpoint of this is not a 40-year-old person telling me what I need to do. This is someone closer to my age. I hope so. And also, it requires energy. So yeah, greatest thing was just taking the kids out, letting them play. Well, and expand on that a little bit, kids just being kids. And the reason I ask that is my wife and I do dinner for the kids at YCAP once a month. And the first few times I did, the thing I really walked away from was, you know what, these are just 11 and 12-year-old boys. And their life is spent to a great degree. They go home, they got to be the man in the house. They got to be responsible. They never have a time to be an 11 or 12-year-old boy. Right. And I I think it's true for children who um, suffer abuse or have other things going on as well. I feel like childhood somewhat stolen from them. Yeah. So to try to give some of that back is a, a really good thing. I had one boy, you know, he, he would always say, I, I'm just stupid. I'm just stupid. I'm like, you're not stupid. And I started teaching him big words, ambidextrous, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. <laughs> and would teach him a new word like every week or every few days. And I'm like, anybody that knows that word knows what it means. Not stupid. Not stupid. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a great approach. So, you know, you find ways to uh, work with and encourage everybody, kind of coach everybody along. Mm -hmm. How long did you do this? I was there. My wife and I were in Tupelo, Mississippi at a kid's emergency shelter and then a girl's home. So probably all total four or five years, came back to Chattanooga and worked a couple of more in one of the local group homes and then the runaway shelter in town as well. What brought you back to Chattanooga? Just a desire to get back or an opportunity? Part of that, we had had our first son. Uh-huh. And so the desire to be closer to family. Makes and, sense. And uh, my mother's grandmother's old farmhouse was vacant and rent-free. So we just <laughs> moved in. It's a shack, but you know, we just moved in and enjoyed uh, being back in the town with family and our young son beginning to grow and, and get bigger. And you plugged in right away to the runaway shelter? Uh, it was crisis counseling first and then the group home and then the runaway shelter. Yeah. So I guess all total, I spent more like eight years with uh, kids. At what point did you decide to uh, 
go to the mission school of ministry and become an Anglican priest. <laughs> All right. So you and I are about the same age, right? I would think so. How many times has your wife said, so what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> Far too many. <laughs> right. So several She's still years. still asking me that, Dale. I was, uh, <laughs> I was, uh, several years I was bivocational. I was doing the social work type thing and helping with new churches, church plants, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, in 2000, I became a pastor at the Vineyard Church in town for about nine years uh, and loved that. Then the economy tanked, you know, in 2008, 2009, and uh, had to leave staff there, planted an independent church in a small coffee shop over in St. Elmo called Pasha Coffee. Did that for four years. Uh, but with the economy, we had people coming and going. And at one point had a couple of families move out of town, one to Texas, one to Nashville. And I said, well, I think it's time to change and do something. So I met up with several friends I knew in town who were church planting and circled back around to my friend Chris at the Mission Chattanooga, which is an Anglican church, mm -hmm. and said, I think I'd like to be an Anglican priest now. But my wife had asked me a few months earlier, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, yeah, I think I want to become an Anglican priest. So at 46, 47, started the journey of becoming an Anglican priest. What's that like to, in your mid-40s, take on something new like that? It was new, but it was not quite new because of everything else I had done before. As far as my kids go, I thought it was great for them to see their dad in midlife going back to school and uh, doing something different. So that was good. And um, I was a much better student in my 40s than I was in my early 20s, right? And I think that example is a great lesson, not just for someone who's going into uh, religious studies, but it, it applies to someone who's looking at their career. And thinking, you know, I'm 46. What else am I going to do? I might as well keep on doing what I'm doing. But there's always time. Right. It's always a good time to get uh, more education or learn something new. How long did that take you? Mm, about a year. So when you're done with that, what's next for you? Uh, three days of exams. <laughs> literally. <laughs> literally. Yeah, literally. Three days of exams all day long. Wow. Yeah. A lot of writing. Uh, it's like everything in the Bible. <laughs> Tell us everything you know about the Bible. And you know what? This is going to be an unfair comparison, and it's just the way my mind works. But you've got to study this book, and then you've got an exam. That's like taking the bar. It's the religious bar. <laughs> it is. It's not for the faint-hearted, that's for sure. Yeah. So you're now an Anglican priest, and you continue doing what you're doing? Or you go to other organizations? What's next? So let's pick up where, so I was in social services for yep. 12 years. The last four years was at the Salvation Army in town running the uh, family shelter from 1996, 97 to 2000. Okay. And then I became a full-time minister roughly for about 20 years in town mm -hmm. at the vineyard, at my independent church, and then as an Anglican all through that time, 
still continued to remain engaged with homeless serving social services in town. Interfaith, which is now Family Promise. I served on their board as a practitioner at the end of my time at the Salvation Army in the next three or four years. I've served on the board at uh, Chattanooga Room in the Inn, who serves families, uh, homeless families Mm -hmm. there, and then served on the board at the Community Kitchen prior to coming on staff at the Community Kitchen would do the uh, Grateful Gobbler Walk mm-hmm. with the Community Kitchen, now the uh, Chat Foundation, and just continued to participate, volunteer, and serve on boards of social service agencies who were focused on uh, serving the homeless in town. Uh, and then about seven years ago, my friend who uh, was the operations director at in the community kitchen asked if we would come in and do a more Anglican type service midweek. And so started volunteering at the community kitchen chat foundation seven years ago, coming in on Thursdays and doing a morning prayers and communion service there. Do they have that every morning with a different denomination represented or is it all pretty much Generic? Yeah. Um, They have had uh, various uh, groups from time to time come in and uh, take a morning or or something like that, but it's not every day. Yeah. And uh, right now, it's um, mainly the volunteers that I coordinate. We've added a Sunday morning service. And so since we've added that, uh, there's a CME pastor that comes in. There's a vineyard pastor that comes in. There's a chaplain at one of the local private schools that will come in and do teaching and uh, some other individuals who will come in and provide service for uh, the homeless at the Chat Foundation on Sundays. And then primarily it's me on Thursdays. So you're part of the Chat Foundation now as their official chaplain? Yes. How did you get to the point to where you jump on social media and I love your handle, Chaplain of the Street? When did all that start? If not before, then definitely when I uh, signed on as a part-time chaplain Mm -hmm. there in 2000. So January 2000, had the opportunity to step on staff. Uh, My position's underwritten by a foundation in town. And so I was able to step in and become the chaplain there on the block in 2000. Prior to that, I was volunteering coming in just one day a week. But since then, it started out three days a week currently up to five days a week there. And yeah, I just uh, started coming in. And after beginning as a part-time chaplain there in uh, 2020 and with the pandemic hitting, really just began to see things that were really deeply affecting me personally, observations, and began posting those on Twitter Anything from just seeing the dedication of our staff when there are no volunteers 
and people still need food every day. Talk about that a little more in depth as we were a little bit earlier, because you started during the pandemic and what it was like to try and serve folks in need when everyone's being told to stay home and shelter in place. Right. So everybody's being told to stay home, shelter in place. So any organization, I'm sure we weren't the only ones, but every organization that heavily relies on volunteers, there were no volunteers. So you had social workers cooking food. You had office staff serving food. You just had everybody who was there trying to pull off the the daily needs. Sometimes that was it, too. I mean, you can only do what you can do. So it's like if we can get lunch done, that's great. That's a win, right? And where do the homeless shelter in place? Someone who doesn't have a home, what do they do? Yeah. They were simply on the street. And this was still winter. Yeah. So a lot of the things that we usually provide, like warming shelter or come inside and sit down and have a meal, you couldn't do any of that. We had to serve meals at the door on the go. There was very little access to showers or or laundry or any of the other things that we do on a regular basis at the chat foundation and so we just had to do our best and and hang on and and gosh it was heartbreaking yeah there's probably articles and pictures of all the tents that were down by the train trestle but what do you do and so you just do the best you can you try to serve people the best you can. Can you take us through a day in the life of Father Dale today of what, like a better term, your job entails? Sure. So I get up and hit it early. I'm downtown by seven. We serve breakfast at seven o'clock and I like to be available for anybody who needs to talk or pray or just uh, wants to talk or, or hang out. I want to be available to them. Breakfast is a good time. Everybody's coming in. They're getting their coffee, getting a bite to eat. And if they've had trouble or have a problem, I'm available. The staff really start rolling in other than us early birds between eight and nine. And so checking with the staff, I'm a chaplain to them as well. Mm -hmm. Is all well, everybody good, (laughs) that type of thing. And, um, I help out with our um, hospitality desk a good bit. Now there, people can check their mail. They can get hygiene items. They can get towels and stuff for showers. They can sign up to do their laundry. And again, it's just availability. I'm available. I'm there. And if people need to at that time, anytime, they can walk up and say, do you have a minute? Can you pray with me? Can we talk? And, uh, just do that. I also take several laps around the block during the day, just walking the street and just saying hello to people, and just checking in. Now, it's a big organization, so we've pretty much got that whole block mm-hmm. down there. So we've got a thrift store on the end. This is on 12th Street, is it? 11th, 11th Street. Street. So there's a huge clothing program there. They give away you know, hundreds of changes of clothes every year 
And so every week, really. And so there's that. There's the community center itself where the showers mm-hmm. and phones and check your mail and all that stuff's going on. You've got the kitchen itself, and that's being renovated. You've got the McClellan Shelter for Families. And then we've got some um, housing on the end, just regular apartments that people who work through the programs can eventually go there. I'm very interested in what the average Chattanoogan can do. Other than being aware and contributing, what do you need or what would you like to see? You know, for someone sitting at home the week before Christmas going, you know what, we really need to focus on something other than ourselves in the coming year. What can they do? Well, one thing uh, I think everybody could do would be to uh, find the Chat Foundation uh, Facebook page. And on there, every month will be posted our needs list. Those needs change somewhat month to month, depending on what's needed and necessary. And so people can go to that page and check and help out with any of the items on that list. Being winter right now, obviously we need gloves, caps, hats, coats, sweaters, any type of warm, uh, warming gear, cold weather gear for the winter uh, is in great demand right now. You know, fresh, fresh underwear and fresh socks is always in need. I've always heard socks are a big thing in homeless shelters. Sure, yeah, sure. Always in need. Yeah, you have to take care of your feet. Yeah. You have to take care of your feet. And so, yeah, we try to make sure people have fresh socks anytime they really need them. Someone's got winter coats and things like that. Is that where they take it? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Gently used winter coats, anything like that. We have donation people all the time ready to come to your car and unload it for you. Okay. And uh, they'll just bring a big cart down and put the stuff in and, and cart it off. Do they need to call ahead of time or they just can show up? Just drop by uh, during business hours. You mentioned earlier uh the Memorial for the Homeless. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The Memorial for the Homeless is always held on the same date, which is um, December 21st. Uh, Well, I don't know about the date, but it's the winter solstice, the longest night of the year. And every year for several years now, we've had this memorial service. And for many of the homeless who have died this past year, it's the only remembrance, the only memorial that they will receive. So it's a really, really special event for us who are invested in the homeless community. We remember. I would imagine because you're dealing with these individuals every day, you're building relationships, you're building bonds. An average Chattanooga may see that a a homeless person died overnight. The effect on you and the effect on the other person is probably 180 degrees. You know, you get to know people, they're friends. Yeah. And you said something to me earlier when we were talking that when you started this service of going around meeting people and building relationships, you were surprised not what they were getting out of it, but what you were getting out of it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, with any relationship, you know that uh, the other person is going to change you. You know you're going to change them. But, yeah, walking in, I had uh, 
no idea just how much it was going to change me. I feel like I have changed. I am changing and will continue to change. And I think in some aspect, it goes back to that Matthew 25. Yeah. You know, do you see Jesus and the other person across the table from you? And for me, I definitely do. Even as chaotic as things can be some days, you call people by name. They know you. Uh, Now, a lot of times they just call me chap or chaplain. I usually tell them, you know, I've been called uh, better by worse and worse by better. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like chap. Yeah. Yeah. All the guys, all the ladies who have been in service, they understand immediately who the chaplain is. Right. And then everybody else. Yeah. It's like, if you can't remember my name, just call me chaplain. Uh, I'm guilty of this. And I'm going to ask, it's kind of a strange question, but for the average Chattanoogan who do not have interaction with a lot of homeless or relationships at all, there seems to be a fear. Why should they not be fearful or what, how can we take it down from being afraid of this person because they're homeless to realizing they're someone like us who needs help? Right. I think familiarity really ratchets down the fear. That's pretty true uh, with any situation. Once you get to know somebody, then you you know who they are. There's always things to fear, always things to be afraid of, sometimes people to be afraid of. But I guarantee you, 90, 95% of the people I encounter, there's nothing to be afraid of. You know, people are people. As you've gotten to know people, you know the way the situation is portrayed in the media. What is the media, what are the average people getting wrong about the homeless crisis? Oh, man. Yeah, I've spoken about this before for decades, really. And even in the the good times, like I I remember back in uh, like when Bill Clinton was in office and the economy's going great, right? It was like, the economy's great. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm seeing more people. (laughs) I'm seeing more people show up to the homeless shelter. Our numbers are going up. Things may be looking good everywhere else, but we've got an underlying problem that we're not addressing, and it's there, and I don't know how long we can ignore it, Mm -hmm. but it's there. And we tend to ignore it because we're personally doing well. I think so. It's really easy uh, that way. But when you realize, when you understand uh, what the – the face of homelessness really looks like it is completely different. Everyone has their stereotype. In your opinion, what does the face of homelessness look like? What do you see? Well, you know, at the McClellan Shelter for Families, it looks like families. It looks like the working poor, which is increasing exponentially. It looks like uh, mothers and fathers trying to make it, people who have lost jobs trying to rebuild their lives. 
for every stereotype that someone could list, I can give you a, uh, a success story where someone has come in, they have uh, worked the programs available and they have secured employment, secured housing, and they're on their way to self-sufficiency for every stereotype that people will come up with. I can give you a success story. I think the stereotype, and I'm going to give you my, obviously my bias on it is, is to a degree, someone who chooses to be on the street to a degree, someone who's just trying to hustle you to a degree, you know, someone who won't take help. And I imagine that's a lot further from the truth than any of us care to admit. I think there are some who prefer to be on the street. There are some who like independence of personal determination and therefore choose to be on the street. But I'll tell you what I see. I see elderly who shouldn't be there. And I look at them and I think to myself, where is your family? Why are you here? You should be with family. You should be in a, a nursing home or a group home. I see those with mental disabilities, often the same thing. It's like, where's your support system? Where's your family? You know, we get people dropped off all the time. When you say dropped off, what do you mean? Well, I mean, it could be, you know, they're not suitable to stay in the hospital, but they but they've been discharged. But they really should have a place to go, right? And we are running a pilot program uh, right now in conjunction with uh, a couple of places that is a respite program for those who have medical needs, not quite ready to just be out on the streets. So it's a respite program that they can stay while they heal. But I see a lot of this, you know, we see a lot of people driven over in a taxi and, and uh, let out. We've got a lot of people coming in from other cities and often we're told, well, they said you had more services here, which I, I don't, I don't know that that's true mm -hmm. for better or for worse. I've heard it called Greyhound therapy, you know, and so. They just give them a bus ticket and send them somewhere else. Right. Not our problem. Right. So the face of homelessness, getting back to that. So it's definitely often the vulnerable. But then also just a lot of people, every one of us is one incident, one accident, one situation away, one life-changing situation away from being vulnerable or being homeless. That's the thing that we don't think about or also have the attitude, it'll never happen to me. That's right. We're pretty self-entitled. We're like, yeah, we got it together. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a challenging situation then that you're tackling head on. And I, I admire that greatly. I do have a couple more questions for you. And this podcast is released the week before Christmas. A lot of people are doing self-evaluations as we get to the end of the year. How can I be a better person next year? What can I do? What message would you give someone that's that's sitting there listening to this right now that, you know, going to 24, consider this, or how can you help them, lack of a better term again, be a better person? Well, since we're in the Christmas season, hopefully maybe everybody's heard Good King Wenceslas 
sometime over the Christmas season. And if not, just, you know, pull it up and listen to it. The last verse says, he who now will bless the poor shall himself find blessing. And I think that's strong medicine. There's a lot of truth in that statement. If you go back to the words of Jesus, that encapsulates a lot of it. You can look in Proverbs. It says basically the same thing. He who lends to the poor, the Lord will give back. And it's like, that's the way to live, not just for ourselves. If we feel like we're doing all right, if we've been blessed, yeah, give a little something. Give away that coat you're not wearing in your closet. Yeah. If you have the means, give a little cash. You know, cash is always good, <laughs> right? <laughs> At the very least, yeah. be kind. I think what you're saying relates back to something you said to me earlier. What you get in return is tenfold what you thought it would be. Yeah, absolutely. Beyond what we've talked about, is there anything you want to add to that that would be helpful to anyone? Yeah, I'll just say one more thing. Uh, St. Francis is a huge influence on me. And looking at the life of St. Francis, if you really dig in, you see that he did something very similar. He lived with the poor and, uh, you know, took the vow of poverty. So have I. <laughs> uh, uh, no, later on, I'm a third order Franciscan. Uh, so, yeah, I took that. Uh, it's like, it's nothing new. I've been poor my entire life. <laughs> that, that was an easy battle. Huh? Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> uh, but that's prayer of St. Francis yeah, always That's my dad's favorite prayer. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Make me an instrument of peace. Where there's hate, let me so love. Where there's hurt, let me bring healing. It's like, do we have an opportunity to do good for someone else? At the end of life, that's all you got. Yeah. I do have one last question that I ask all my guests, but to a great degree, I think you've already answered it, but I'll ask you anyway. Think about your 25-year-old self. What would you tell that 25-year-old self is important for a happy life? <laughs> Don't worry about money too much and hang on. It's going to be a wild, wild ride. That's okay. It's going to be fun. It's good. I like that because it is a wild ride. Twists and turns and ups and downs. If you like roller coasters, boy, do we have a ride for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Father Dale, this was a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking time to do this, and I hope you and your family and everyone you love have a Merry Christmas. Oh, thank you. Same to you as well. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.